Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Synergy Cast. I'm your host, Sonia Joffer, and I'm so excited to introduce you all to Elias Jade Not Afraid, who is a self taught beater and member of the Upsalaga Nation, also known as Crow Nation, and he joins me today for a conversation where we unpack Elias's art practice and how his cultural background impacts it. We also discuss decolonizing museums, cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation, Elias's personal journey with mental health, and how his beadwork has played a huge role in his healing journey. I want to put a content warning out there that we do discuss some pretty heavy topics in today's episode regarding mental health, specifically suicidal ideation and substance use. So if this brings up some tough feelings and emotions for you, please utilize that self-care while listening and feel free to take breaks because this episode is a little bit longer than my usual episodes. Also, if you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal ideation and needs to seek help, you can do so by reaching out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and the number is 800-273-8255. You can also visit their website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org and you can find those in the episode notes as well. If you want to check out Elias on social media, you can do so on Instagram at Elias Not Afraid. Also check out his beautiful website, EliasJadeNotAfraid.com. And also in the episode notes, you will find a link to a Vogue magazine article, which Elias was featured in. And also there is a link to check out the Upsalaga Woman and Warriors exhibit at the Field Museum, which we mentioned in today's episode and which Elias was also a part of. All right, everyone, I also want to acknowledge one more thing before I get this episode started for you all. I do acknowledge that this episode is being released a day before Thanksgiving, and I also want to acknowledge that the Thanksgiving holiday, similar to Columbus Day, is tied to a very traumatic history involving colonization and indigenous peoples, and this episode features an indigenous artist. So I definitely want to acknowledge that and put that out there before I get this episode started for you all. I'll also include a link in the episode notes if you want to learn more about the National Day of Mourning, which is a protest against Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving holiday, and explains more as to why the Thanksgiving holiday is a very problematic one. So I will include that in the episode notes as well, so feel free to check that out if you want to learn more. All right, everyone, that's it for the intro. I'm going to go ahead and play the conversation that we had. It was a very beautiful and very insightful and empowering conversation. So I hope you all enjoy listening and take away something from it. So today we have a very special guest here on the show, Elias Jade Not Afraid, who is a member of the Upsalaga Nation, also known as Crow Nation. And he's also a beadwork artist based in Montana. So thank you so much for being here, Elias. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited for it too. Yeah, of course. Um, so what would you like to share about yourself to the listeners before we get started? I know I just gave a very brief introduction of who you are, but what else would you like to share about yourself? My name is Elias Jade Not Afraid. I am a 30-year-old uh, gay 
Native American. I was born and raised here on the Crow Indian Reservation out here in La Tres, Montana. Um, I'm a self-taught beater. I come from a line of our generations of beadwork artists. I live here in uh, on my reservation in Lotchgrass, out in the uh, Wolf Mountains, where my family's from. We're either from, you know, the mountain area or down by the river. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that about yourself. And one thing that uh, really stood out to me, well, a lot of things stood out to me when we were talking before, when we were planning for this episode, and uh, one thing was that you just mentioned that you are a self-taught beater. And so I think that's really interesting, especially like someone who also identifies as an artist and is in art therapy as well. Uh, that's something that really stood out to me about you that you shared with me. So I'm really interested to hear what got you interested in art making in general, but beadwork specifically, because I know that you practice beadwork a lot in your art practice. Yeah. Uh, I started when I was 12 years old, and it was just pure out of pure boredom. Because uh, we, where we live at here in Montana, we're in very rural areas, so our closest neighbor is about maybe a mile away. I grew up sheltered, you know. I wasn't able to go into town and like play with my friends or go to other places and do things. I was always, you know, ground or at home, and so. With me and my brothers, we just made the best of what we could, you know, go hiking, do a lot of outdoor uh, activity. And during the winters when it'd be like freezing out and it's just blizzarding and there's like, you know, I can't really go outside and do anything. So we would be inside a lot. Around that time when I was 12 years old, uh, my grandmother has a cedar chest that she kept her like her equipment and her sewing and beading equipment. We actually have it still up in the other room. And um I just, you know, started going through it, looking for, you know, just whatever I could. Then started paying more attention to, like, the the beaded item that was finished. And a lot of the stuff in there was half finished. So I would examine the, uh, it was a, a legging that had, like, floral, uh, a beaded floral pattern on, on moose hide. And so I was just looking at it and figuring out how she did it. So I would cut one of the knots and then start to unravel it, pull through the uh, the beads out and then take out a section. And then I would, with what materials that were in her chest there, I would thread a needle and then I figured out, you know, like all needles don't go through the beads. So you have to use a special needle. So I just kind of, you know, learned these things as I went and would put it, try to put it back together. So if I would mess up and I didn't know what, I, what, what to do on this side, I would do the same thing on the opposite side and I would take it out and see how it was done. So I'd be like, oh, okay. So I, and then I would just, you know, replicate it like that. I would do it to where I would just do a couple lines, take it out and then the whole leaf and then the whole flower. And so after that, I just kind of got bored with it and learned a different technique, which was a peyote stitch. And I learned that while I was in middle school. It got to the point where, you know, that's all I would be doing. And then I was doing it at school. And then I would get teased by my classmates because I was a male doing beadwork. And the way they looked at beadwork was it was a woman's job. So I kind of stopped doing it at school and just did it more at home. And then I started to learn about it, like read up about it, what tribes did, you know, this type of technique. And just kind of taught myself and just study from what materials that were I had access to. I did ask family members a lot that, you know, if they could show me how to bead, because we do have other members in our family that do bead, and they were, would be really hesitant at first, just like, because I'm like a kid 
trying to learn something that's like time consuming and like, you know, you have to have patience to do. Or they would say that whoever taught them how to be told them that they couldn't teach any other buddy outside that family how to do it. So it was kind of like a secret. Then it would come to colors. And then I would ask them, you know, how do you match colors? How do you, you know, do your colors for beadwork? Same thing, like we use these colors because these are our family colors, which isn't, you know, I don't think it's a thing. I don't know if, you know, families have certain colors tied to their beadwork. So I just studied like, you know, like with colors matching them up and see how like what looks good to with this color and how to make like an ugly color look better with using different colors try to even it out so I learned that when I was you know younger was trying to how to do my colors and so the way that I would go about it would be get a bunch of colors like I want to use these on this I just start with one color and then while I'm going I'll do the outline of it and I'll be like okay so I'll just you know pick another color and then I'll be like well it goes with this and then so I just kind of that's just kind of my process on on doing it. And I've learned that when I was about 14 or 15. And another one was, you know, the design. Because a lot of times people would be like, you can't be this design because this is my family's design. And so I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and then would see it uh, like, you know, in other people's beadwork. So it was always like, you had to be innovative with your design and for it to be uniquely yours or, you know, identified as yours, which I didn't really understand. I don't know if it was just a way to, for people to like discourage me from beating, but you know, I didn't. So the one way that I taught myself how to like do the design is I just try to make it up as quick as I can in my head by just using with what I can see around me. So like, I'll see like, you know, like sunflowers or something and then over here, I see like some, you know, different color. I'm like, oh, I could use this for the, you know, the background. I just kind of taught myself how to come up with, you know, the design on the spot. I had to like kind of put the two and two together, getting the design and then your colors right. And from 12 years old up until I was 16, I would just practice on beating until I finished my first project, which was a medallion, which was like this little small medallion that had my name in it. And then it just had like some like filigree design and with like really bright beads. And and then I wore it to, uh, in high school and I didn't tell people I, I, you know, did the beadwork. I would just say like my aunt beaded this for me. I told some people like, you know, in grade school or like seventh grade, like, you know, I did beadwork. And first thing was, you know, I thought only women bead. Mm. Or are you, you know, are you gay? Or, you know, and it's just, they would put the two together. Like if you did beadwork and you were male, you were gay. And that kind of, you know, with me dealing with my sexuality as at a young age, like around that time, I, I knew that I was gay, but I didn't know how to like address it or I didn't know, you know, anything about it. I didn't know how to act or, or who to talk about. So it just kind of like really plagued me. Like in my mind every day, it was just like, you're like this, you know, you're, you like, you're attracted to, you know, the same sex. And you hear, you know, your grandparents saying that people who are gay go to hell. Mm. And so, it kind of like was a bit traumatizing because like, you know, I felt like I was going to go, like I was bound for hell or something. And so I would just be, just, you know, try to use my time instead of worrying about it, just, you know, focusing on something, you know, it's helped me all the way up until now. It still helps me. Yeah. It's always interesting for me to hear people's journey, especially like through your art practice. And so to hear like where you started from, you just use like what you had access to around you 
And that's why I feel like that kind of influenced your kind of impromptu way that you go about doing the art processes. Like, I'm just going to use what I have around me, maybe get a little bit of inspiration from like a sunflower next to me or something, but then just use things around me and see where it takes me. Um, so I think that's, that's really interesting to like hear where your art process started from and then also how it's evolved um, now, because I know that's a huge part, your art practice is a huge part um, of who you are now too. So it's always interesting for me to see how that's evolved, but also how some things you still like stay connected to, um, even though a lot of things change and shift, there are still some things that kind of remain a little bit the same or those foundations are still there. We heard a little bit about your art practice over time. So how would you describe your art practice now? And also I know that um, your intentions behind the specific materials that you decide to choose as well. So how would you describe all of that? So what I do is I, I like to refer to myself as a bead artist um, instead of a bead worker. What I try to do that is different from other bead artists that are out there is by, you know, using and are collecting and using like vintage and antique like jewelry findings or just, you know, really unique things like a skull carved pearl or, you know, a skull carved buffalo horn bead you know, because they're, they're hard to find. It's a rare item, you know, and it takes a lot of work. And so, you know, that value that it has to it and how rare it is, I try to mix that with my traditional uh, way of like, you know, doing beadwork. So I use it as a, my the foundations of they did back then in the 1800s. And so like beading on buckskin with a brain tan deer hide, then they so once the hide is smoked and it's kind of like tanned a little bit you know I just put my design on it and I beat on that compared to you know nowadays uh, people uh, will use like felt and pell on or to beat on and then you know over time it just breaks down and depending on the felt that you're using and the material like it doesn't last long it starts to fall apart and so what I try to do is use what my ancestors used like you know the buckskin and the elk ivories the like different types of shells and I try to like blend the two with you know, like my own unique style and just things that I like and try to create something that's a just kind of a representation of that. Sometimes I like to like push boundaries with it. Like for instance, like it's really taboo for crow uh, beaters to bead skulls or uh, bead with black because black is a color of mourning and you know death and stuff like that and same with a skull so what I try to do is be the skull but you know have something that's appealing to look at like a rose or and then just blend the two so where you know that focus isn't on the skull it's just you know you're looking at it as a whole you're more focused on the flower and how it blends together and so that's kind of how I approached it at first when I first started doing beadwork because um, the very first time I did be a skull was around like when I was 16, 17 years old and I got cussed out by elderly people saying like, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Like that's, you know, why are you beating things like that? Or, you know, have some respect for it or, and so it just kind of made me put that kind of artistic freedom in the closet and just focus more on traditional beadwork, which would be just geometric and floral designs. So I tried to, uh, 
approach it in a different way than just coming out, you know, with a skull and looking like satanic or something, <laughs> you know, because people do, well, that's just their first thing they say is, you know, that's, you know, are you a devil worshiper? <laughs> I've had a couple of people ask me that because, you know, I was wearing like a bead skull and, you know, all black. And so it's just like, I try to approach it by blending, you know, something beautiful with something, you know, like a skull. And the reaction that people have to it is, you know, completely different than what it was before. So I try to do that and push forward, showing what we can do with our beadwork. Because to me, like what I personally think, like, you know, every generation, like going back into the 1800s, like had a different technique style and like a trend of beadwork, like floral designs uh, to be specific. And like, if you look at the floral beadwork from 18, the 1800s and compare it to the beadwork from the 1900s to like, you know, 1950, and there's like a complete different style of floral designs. I feel that it's, you know, where we're at now, it kind of stopped and we don't really have something that's new and creative. And just me as a person, you know, like, you know, like my personal opinion, like I just wanted to like try to blend the two, both geometric and floral design. And we can like, when people see it like, oh, you know, that's crow. Because people will look at, identify like the floral beadwork and the geometric beadwork as crow, just because the colors and designs are so unique to us that, a lot of um, people, you know, different tribes like their beadwork. And so I do like to challenge myself too, as well with, you know, materials that are out there. So with my first um, entry piece for Indian market, when I first applied in 2017, was a pair of traditional style uh, cuff that just wrapped around, looked like a, almost like a bogard. I took uh, Kevlar material and layered it under i beat it on one layer of kevlar and then layered it under it and so i made them into like bulletproof cuffs like bulletproof beaded cuffs and so i just wanted to like you know experiment with that and with different materials that are kind of unique to find so it just kind of depends on how i'm feeling and i always like to say that i'm an emotional beater because like when i get mad or you know, get into an argument with somebody, like, instead of just, like, you know, lashing out or, like, going around and doing whatever, I just come into my room and I'll just, like, lock my door and just sit here and I'll just put it, that, you know, that energy into it. You know, it takes my mind off of what's going on around me. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is, like, it sounds like it's very important for you to also incorporate those, like, ancestral, like, types of patterns and colors in your bead art, but also you, it is also important for you to kind of do something that's unique and also kind of something that shifts things a little bit too. And so to have that balance of both, like having something that you can recognize as being crow, but also like something that also pushes the boundaries a little bit too at the same time and kind of holds both simultaneously. Yeah. And one other thing too, is that like, when people think of, you know, oh, you do beadwork, they, uh, like, some people just think powwows and, you know, the little stands that, you know, sell, like, the beaded earrings that have, you know, like, some plastic, not that there's, you know, nothing bad, you know, doing that, but I just want to show others that are from my tribe that do beadwork that, you know, if you do take this serious and, you know, start doing the collecting of, like, the vintage and antique beads, which is my my big thing, like, that I'd like to do, because I like to say that I do have, like, a 
like an addictive personality. And so a way to kind of like, you know, put that and like be constructive about it would be collecting antique and vintage beads. For me, it's just like, you know, I have to do it. I have to find some or, you know, and call around different places and just, you know, build a collection up to where I can start making items with, you know, using various colors. And then too, like a lot of people don't know that like the beads that they had back in 1850 compared to now. And so I like to, you know, educate people too, or just with what I know or what I find out that I find really interesting about like, you know, bead history and that's, you know, the materials that are mixed into it. Like some are made with gold, some are a secret like family like recipe for that glass mix that they've only been the only family to produce that color and texture of that bead that they don't make anymore and it was only available back then and so I try to teach people the value of that and then why my prices are you know what they are like you know these things can be used as family heirlooms and be passed down you know from generation to generation like some of the beadwork that are in collections today from the 1850s in that you know era um, are still intact like the beads are in perfect condition there's like the materials that they've used made of like, you know, kind of withered up, but the beads are still vibrant and they, if they have the facets, you know, they're really shiny. And so I try to like teach people the difference between each bead, like where the beads came from and uh, the date, if I happen to know it or why it's a rare bead. And I use, I bead with, you know, cut beads. It's like, oh, okay, well, what kind of cut beads? What, you know, are they Italian? Are they French? Are they from the Czech Republic? You know, are they faceted? You know, what materials are they used? Are they dyed? It's good to teach people about it. One thing that I find I found while doing research about beads too was back in the 1800s when the Italians were experimenting with colors by mis mixing different metals into the mixture to make the glass for the bead. Sometimes they would mix like lead or arsenic or, you know, other toxic materials that were, you know, made into a, a big batch and then as a test run. And then they would, you know, make the bead all the way up until they strung them up on hanks. But they find out that, you know, if these beads are broken and there's like little particles of it gets in, you know, in your mouth or something, you can get poisoned from it. So what the Italians did back then was that they traded those beads with Native Americans over here for furs and then showed me that that was, you know, a thing that, you know, they really did that was going through the field museum's collection and seeing that some of the beads that were in there were made with arsenic. It's just really, you know, it was, it's cool to learn about, but still, you know, they gave us the, you know, the, the test beads. You know, it's really good to like, you know, educate people about this too. So it just kind of builds that interest. And what I wanted to do for my community is to have people get interested in beadwork. So like, you know, like the younger generation, like I just want them to see like, you know, you could you know, come from nowhere and have nothing and then just you know start out with just a couple of beads and then just slowly work your way up yeah. and that you can do something with it do uh, be a full-time artist with it that's kind of one of the main things that I like to do is just help others and try to educate others with just what I you know what I've learned about the history of like beads and beadwork yeah I think like one of the things I love about your art practice is like the intentionality that goes behind it. You do, you engage in the bead uh, art making because like for like for yourself too, like you mentioned, like it's very therapeutic. It helps you like channel some 
emotions and energy into in the art making, but also like it's to share a piece of that with the community as well. But it's really interesting to hear like how there's a whole collecting aspect to it too. And how like the, it's important to like have people know about the collecting and about where the beads have come from just so that they can be aware of it as well. But then also for the context too, which is like what you mentioned with like how the Italians like traded those to indigenous peoples like that contain poison in them. So I think it serves multiple purposes to inform people and ourselves too about what materials we're using in our art practice. That's to have an extra appreciation for where they came from, but also to understand the context that they came from too and that they still exist in today as well. Yeah, thing that I've encountered with doing beadwork as like, you know, doing art markets and stuff is that uh, non-Indigenous people who, you know, see beadwork that's for sale and they think, is it okay for me to, you know, buy this or, you know, wear this if I buy it? And if I'm, I'm not going to get, you know, yelled at for, you know, using as Native American and, you know, while appropriation if you're able to buy directly from the artist, it's better to do so because, you know, that is a form of um, cultural appreciation. And, you know, it, it does, you know, goes back into our supplies and whatnot. So with beadwork, I like to like kind of categorize what I do with my beadwork too. And my, with, um, so like I have my jewelry and it's just this kind of my way of trying to price out something and, like what materials I'm using. So say if I'm using elk ivory and like, you know, like some shells and like what's the value of that and then combine it with whatever I'm doing. So it just kind of, I have this like chart where I have my wearable art and then there's like, you know, the fashion part where if I be like a bag or something or on clothing and, or do the clothing. And then, you know, there's a price range from that and it kind of helps me price out my pieces because when it comes to pricing, it varies. One person will have something that looks like this, that almost beat it in the same manner, but, you know, they're selling it at for 50 bucks. And someone over here has the same thing, but looks a little different, but they're charging like $400 for it. And so I think it's really important for like to know where your materials came from and selling beadwork and making sure that the materials that you do use are of best quality because you don't want to like sell somebody something and it fall apart on them because that, you know, that only doesn't reflect on that artist itself. It reflects on like the native community. They'll just think like, oh, they're just, you know, trying to put something together to sell it for a quick buck. So like I, I try to tell people like put more attention into your work and like, you know, looking to those little details of, you know, by just using beading on leather instead of felt. Because yeah. um, now like people bead with you know rhinestones that's kind of like the trend that's going on and I've you know done that started out doing that too when I was you know before I started taking beading really serious it's just a plastic banding that has rhinestones and so people will sew it on to the edges of like you know the beadwork and over time they fall out and you know kind of break up so I try to teach people to just go back to the like the basic ways of beading and that's just a complete beaded item instead of with the like the plastic you know crystal stuff but um and to pay more attention to what they're you know the materials are using so they can you know charge more and 
get more for their product that for the work that they're putting into it it goes back to like how you're so intentional about every step of the process and every material and also like connecting with the community because engaging in art making that's doing it for ourselves but also helps us connect to the community at large too so also like bringing it back to like making sure people are informed about which materials and beads and like where they came from and which besides the beads too like you mentioned the felt versus the leather and also i feel like nowadays like people just want something so fast and easy and quick but then it doesn't last so i i really like how you have this like intentionality about like you want to use the materials that will make it last and yes it might take a little bit longer and it might have a little bit more labor involved and it might be a little bit more pricey but that's like really important to you that you're making something that will last for sure and with by doing that too like some there's like newer materials that have come out within this past 10 years like kevlar thread the carbon fiber threads that are you know that are really hard to break and they've turned it into beading thread so you know i try to find things like that, those type of materials that are just, you know, just unique and try to blend it with something like, you know, because that was the the thread that I would use on those Kevlar cups was the actual Kevlar thread. So it would last for a very, very long time. And, you know, I do believe more in quality than quantity. You can tell the difference in the work that you, hours you put into it compared to something that's just made in one night and, you know, there's gaps and stuff. And it, so it's just trying to tell the people, you know, just to kind of like, you know, just take your time with it. And, you know, if you really put your work in, you know, put the effort into it, that you can start charging, charge more for that and make a career out of it. Cause like right now from where I'm from, we have a lot of unemployment out here. We were so dependent on our tribe for like jobs with just everything going on now that, you know, everybody's hurting for jobs and so people are, you know, doing beadwork, selling earrings and stuff. And so like what I, when I see people selling beadwork and they sell like, you know, they're selling something that's fully beaded and, you know, I can tell that they put the time into it and stuff. And, or if I just come across it and they're like trying to sell it and it's not selling, with my social media and I just have like a bunch of like followers and stuff. So I try to share those things on my page, their work for sale. So like, you know, I see somebody selling earrings of like, all right, I'll just post it and be like, Oh, here's some beaded earrings. And if you guys are looking for earrings, they end up selling them. And so it kind of gave me an idea, like just recently that I wanted to like create a page out of, you know, my Facebook to kind of make a marketplace for for artists but you know where I'm not have no part of no deal or I'm not selling it I'm just you know you just put it on there and I'll help provide the people like the members for this group and getting it out there that you're trying to sell something so that's like the project that I kind of thought of just within the past couple of days well just being back home and then seeing like you know how it is here like economically and it's good to learn to to beads and I wanted to like do a workshop to just kind of do the introductory of beading and how to start it. So that way if they want to to try it so they can, you know, just make some money and, you know, for whatever, that that's an option. I, I want to um, you know, get more involved with my community as well too, but in that aspect. Because there is a very there's so many talented beaders that are on this, you know, in the res our reservation. 
And a lot of times they don't share their work on Facebook because they're afraid somebody's going to copy them. Mm-hmm. And that's one that like another thing that kind of comes up within like the beading community is that people would copy other people's work, creating just all this negativity for something that they probably wanted for themselves. And if I, I've encountered that too with people copying my stuff and the way that I look at it is like, I don't, I don't get mad. I don't, you know, I don't care. Like I'll encourage them to like, you know, that looks good or like, you know, these are like your colors that you use. Because if I come at them and just being mean and just like, why are you stealing my design? And what kind of like eases my mind about it is that, you know, okay, they did copy your design, but they're not using the same materials as you. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference. And like, with a lot of these old beads, there's colors and textures that, you know, like I said before, that they don't make anymore. So, and it, it, it stands out compared to contemporary beads. So I usually, like, I just don't even, you know, get mad about it or just give it any energy to call them out on it. Because, you know, they probably did the same thing I did when I first started out where I was struggling with design and color. So I was using other people's work as inspiration, but you know, trying to make it my kind of my design. Yeah, it goes like back to that community aspect too, which I also really like about how you approach the beadwork. It's like a lot of people I feel like, like you described would see it as competition. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I have all these people to compete with, but I feel like you don't approach it that way. You approach it as, no, there's more of us, you know? And like, I like how you like try to uplift other bead workers as well that are like maybe up and coming or they're just starting out. And so I always see you like on your social media, like sharing other bead workers art as well. And so I like how you approach it as more like let's uplift each other instead of like compete with each other and then create that divide. And also the point you brought up about the economic crisis as well. Um, that's why like I really want to highlight um, that point that you made about like cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation and I think a lot of people are like very scared of cultural appropriation and they don't want to like do that and so um, and that those intentions are good but a lot of times it ends up harming the indigenous people and their communities and their artwork because then people aren't buying it or like people aren't showcasing it. So I like that point that you made that I think it's like really important to really hit on that. Like there's a difference between appropriation and appreciation. And so I like how you said to buy artwork from indigenous peoples, that's appreciation. And even like you said to wear it, even if you bought something and you are non-indigenous and even if you wear that out in the public that's still not appropriation right yeah yeah Yeah. and with another thing that does make it hard for us to get our work out there is that there's there's non there are non-indigenous beaters out there who will replicate a lot of my tribe's designs or like you know, the Sioux tribes designs, and they've built a career out of it. The thing that just kind of baffles me is why have hasn't anybody like addressed it or even, you know, talked about it. And until I started taking, you know, doing the art market by being in this, you know, art scene and just, you know, observing everybody else and how they interact with each other and like um, with this, this lady or, and then there's a guy too that does this, who does replicate and profit off of uh, our tribe's designs and also the Sioux tribe's designs. 
and they're non-native. They're, you know, they're white. And have they have stuff in museums, galleries, and that takes away these opportunities for us who are, you know, from these communities that they are replicating and, you know, do the same thing. And then replicating my tribe's designs, I, I saw one time where the individual that was, you know, replicating my tribe's design said that they were going to sue somebody because they stole the design off of a reservation style felt hat that was beaded. And somebody from a Crow tribal member who beaded a hat, you know, beaded on the hat, a, a floral design or a geometric design, this person was threatening to sue them for copyright infringement because those were her design and yet they weren't she's not even native and so and i would talk about it with other you know artists and stuff and they're like oh yeah we just you know uh, we just don't talk about that kind of you know we don't approach that because the backlash is gonna make you look bad like you're trying to seek trouble and you know you're just trying to start something in you know reality this person is stealing, is appropriating our culture. And so I did have a confrontation with her about it. And it was because she replicated a, a sacred, a sacred, I wouldn't say relic, but it was a, we call it medicine. It's just like a, like, it's very sacred to us. And so the item that was replicated by her was like a ceremonial item, or it had that tie to, you know, that, Native American, you know, that medicine, what we call medicine, uh, and it's sacred to them. She replicated it and sold it for like thousands of dollars. And it was from the Cheyenne's tribe, like one of their medicine objects that she replicated. And um, I just jumped on and was just like, you know, why are you doing that? Why are you appropriating, you know, our culture? Well, not my culture, but, you know, the Cheyenne's tribes, you know, their sacred items or their ceremonial items. And who are you, you know, and who are you? And and it just like was back and forth, back and forth. Like I got permission from Native American elders and I'm like, okay, well, who are these elders? And how much did you sell this piece for? And where did you sell this piece to? Because it was for a gallery or a museum piece. And so like, instead of, you know, the museums coming to us, the actual Native artists, they go find, you know, someone else to do it. Our own people are supporting them. Our own people are encouraging these people to continue to do what they're doing, and that's continue to rip off our stuff. A lot of times, um, you know, when I say, like, you know, buy from them directly from the Native artists, we do have, like, some places that will sell art for Native Americans or buy Native art and then resell it at a inflated price. So me growing up here on the reservation when I was around 13, 14, or 15, in that area um i would sell my beadwork to trading posts here out in crow and then in hardin towns that are just you know not too far and so i would sell these items to them for like 25 dollars, and then they would resell it for 150 dollars. i felt like they would take advantage of like you know the economic crisis that we have here on our reservation because when we don't have anything to you know we don't if we don't have work or you know we don't have a way to get money we will pawn our our regalia or our you know these wool blankets or teepees or beadwork for powwows on it so we can you know have you know money but when they buy it they don't buy it for what it's worth they buy it for what they know they can get for the cheapest amount for it and usually that's not you know something talked about too because the people that are doing it 
are, you know, in good standing with the community. So it just seems like, you know, we're just allowing ourselves to be ripped off from, you know, what our work actually is. Because like when I first started doing these Indian markets, I didn't think that, you know, my pro- or the thing that it would be would be worth this much because I was always told that it wasn't worth over this much. Mm-hmm. And so by, you know, integrating these different materials into my projects and stuff like it, it helped me, you know, increase the value of it, but still that it's something that's so unique that, and it was made by hand. So that way, you know, it can be passed on from generation to generation. Like how beadwork is passed down here is that, you know, one family will have uh, like a whole all regalia and they pass it down their family. Um, so like what I try to t- continue to like, you know, just experiment with new materials and, you know, try to work directly with the artists instead of another company or, you know, another, a third person that would, you know, a middleman. Yeah. Because there should be a direct link from, you know, a customer to the artist instead of having to go through somebody else. Because if they're, you know, say this person that's buying it is with this company that, you know, oh, we want to use this artist to design a logo for us, but they would have to go through that artist or that person that third person and so they put their name on it and take credit for it which has happened to me and you know I designed something and got zero credit for it I had to like you know either if I say something about it it's just causing trouble or I'm acting ungrateful but it's like no like I know what the worth of my work is now so you know I'm of course I'm gonna make say something because I'm not being recognized for this as the artist the third person is the one taking getting all the credit for it yeah definitely i think it's like really important to talk about cultural appropriation so i'm really glad that we are speaking on that it's it's so problematic for so many for so many reasons and like a lot of those reasons you just shared as well and i think especially like even if you are non-indigenous this applies to you but especially if you're a white person, given that history, given that historical context with colonization and the power dynamics there, that just adds a whole nother layer on top of it too. And so it's really unfortunate that like you mentioned that there's like a lot of times indigenous peoples don't have any choice but to sell off these regalia and stuff like that out of a method of survival, out of a need. And it's very unfortunate that there are people out there who are non-indigenous and they take advantage of that. And I bet like those people um, that you mentioned that do participate in the cultural appropriation of indigenous peoples, art making, specifically like beadwork, I bet the money that they're making is they're not putting that back into indigenous communities as well. So I feel like that's really important that we're speaking on that piece of cultural appropriation and how it's just so problematic, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. and that money is not going back to the community, Mm -hmm. it's being taken away. And so those same systems of power that were originated with colonization, they're still being perpetuated today by people that are still engaging in cultural appropriation. And that's why it's such a problem as well. Yeah, it's, and the thing is, is that nobody talks about it. Nobody addresses it. Nobody, they they see them do it. They see them, like even like museum curators, gallery owners, like uh, historians, they see these people doing it. It's just that, oh, they do nice work. So I continue to follow. 
And then when they start posting different things that are, you know, that are really nice, you know, like not saying that their beadwork isn't nice because they do have some amazing beadwork, but it's the fact that they're not Crow and, you know, they're not indigenous and yet they're making these sort of items just for profit. And a lot of times, like, well, just discussing with, like, you know, some of my friends and other artists is like, if they want to, like, you know, be native inspired or like if they want to do something indigenous or like is to just collaborate with an artist, a native artist. As long as there's like, say if they're cutlier, there's a project, they want to do a project and it's, you know, involving like a war bonnet on there as a logo or something. And instead of them having, hiring somebody like graphic designer to design some native inspired logo, instead, like, why don't they just collaborate with the native artist and then just give them that you know recognition that this was a collaboration and you know we're doing this the right way because you know that cultural appreciation what i've seen is a lot of times these companies that make a lot of native inspired clothing are not in the country they're either in china or like russia they'll create these pages that are like proud to be native american and it's just some stereotypical like wolf within like a native looking on one direction and there's like an eagle in the background and they just make these sort of, you know, stereotypical pieces of like clothing and there's a market and people are buying it and they're not even from an indigenous person. It's just people appropriating culture, but they're using these Facebook pages and stuff to like kind of cover their true identity on who they are. And there's, there is a lot of groups that like on Facebook that are, it's called Indian interests or native inspired or the American Indian and friends. And it's just a group of white people that are interested in indigenous culture and they're interested in the craft and, you know, the different types of art forms that we have and they just appropriate it and they just create these items and you know sell them to each other trade with each other and it's like their own little community but they're not indigenous they're just people with hobbyists yeah and so that's really infuriating too and it's just the fact that nobody talks about it it's just one of those things that it's there and just don't give it any thought just look the other way kind of that's the vibe that i get from that so like i like if i see these sort of things i like to just you know like post about it i'll just call them out on it if it's to that point where if it's bad enough like they're whatever they're doing and like say if they're using a photo of old crow beadwork and they're making a whole line of clothing with just that print and you know i'll say something about it but most of the times like these hobbyists that do replicate our work it's just for profit and they just you know it's nobody cares nobody says anything and it feels they feel like there's gonna there will be a repercussion of like if they do say something and that's the thing that kind of that I'm always thinking about is like with like you know my platform just being because you know of my beadwork and stuff um like me as a person I try to like limit what I put out there and stuff and so like my own personal opinion comes out of like somebody appropriating culture our culture or you know our designs and stuff it's like a part of me wants to you know just call them out by name just get really cutthroat about it but it's just this person has 
ties with the whole native community and so there would be like you know and then i don't want that to like you know reflect on my me as an artist and like you know in the eyes of you know whoever's following me out there like because i do know that like i have like a few museums and a few curators and you know just people that follow my work i try to stay with my social media about just art like you know i try to just focus on beating but then you know there's certain things that do happen like you know in our community and it's like i want to talk about these things but like you know i don't want to become that person like it's just like i'm trying to pick a fight i'm trying to start something i'm trying to call somebody out for something small or you know so I'm, I'm trying to always like balance those two out to my personal you know me as in general as a person away from me as an artist yeah that makes that makes sense because i do see like I do see the importance of calling it out like when you see it because like you mentioned like a big part of the problem and why it still continues to be a problem is because people don't talk about it and that's one of the reasons why it is still such a big problem and it's causing so much harm to the community as well and to indigenous peoples as well so I do see like the importance of calling it out and I also like how you said like sometimes you choose to just you know, let it pass because like it takes a lot of energy and effort and a lot of exhaustion to, to have to call things out all the time. And for that responsibility to be put on you is a, a heavy burden to carry. So I do like and appreciate how you speak on how you do call stuff out, but sometimes you feel like you have to balance like conserving your own energy as well and just kind of let things pass a little bit but um mm. I, yeah i think it's just like that responsibility should not fall on you you know i feel like mm. it should like i feel like especially like non-indigenous peoples i feel like it's like our responsibility to have to have these conversations with people like when we see mm. someone appropriating an indigenous person's culture like and if you're non-indigenous like I feel like you should be calling that out so that that responsibility and all of that burden doesn't fall on indigenous peoples alone, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I like how you mentioned that about that balance. Definitely. Yeah. Before I started, you know, taking beating serious, I would just rant on Facebook and, and then that just made me, you know, think that too, like, why am I wasting my energy on, you know, small topics or small things? And so I'll type, like now, I'm, I'll type out this big old post and like, I'm out, this person did this. And then I just select all and delete. And then I just exit out of it. And I just, I feel like I've said it. I put it out there in words, but I, you know, I didn't post it. So it, that's kind of like a, a way for me to like, you know, deal with that. Because a lot of um, indigenous artists were just looking, as just artists were viewed as you should only be talking about you know your art and all this we're not allowed to be humans you'll see an artist one day like you know just rant and rave on you know about something just random and everybody looks at him and they're like oh did you see what she posted or i wonder who she's talking about or like why would she even post that or you know and so it just kind of turns people off to like what I want them to focus on work and stuff so it's really hard to do that so like what I've kind of been hinting at my you know my artist friends that I've made they're you know like coming into this art scene 
is that create a artist page and a personal account. So that way you can keep two like separate. You can focus more on your artist page with whatever, but like if you want to like rant and rave and whatnot, you know, do it on your personal account because it does reflect on the artist and like a future sell or because it makes it like if we're allowed to be human, you know, and we have like some kind of meltdown or whatever and we're just cussing out and like that's our only way to vent is through Facebook and you know people see that and they it just makes you standoffish so like say they see this person at an art market and like oh like you know I don't want to make her mad or something so they just kind of like go the other way (laughs) yeah no yeah I I like that that like aspect of like containment kind of Mm -hmm. like you have like this one page that's because like social media like you mentioned it can be used for self-expression as well which can be therapeutic to expressing mm-hmm. yourself and like what you're feeling. So like, I like how you have that like artist page that's just specifically for your art and you contain that in that page. And then you also have your personal page where you do get to like express your thoughts and your feelings. So like, I like how you have that containment that's like separate. Also, like I want to circle back to when we were talking about exhibits and museums, mm-hmm. because there is a lot of problematic history with the way that museums showcase indigenous cultures and history um and there's a lot of cultural appropriation and perpetuating the same systems of colonization within museum spaces as well um, in regards to exhibiting about indigenous peoples the way i heard about you was through like we were learning in my class last semester about the upsilaga woman and warriors exhibit at the field museum And we were learning specifically about decolonizing museums and exhibitions and how this specific exhibit was an example of decolonizing museum spaces and exhibitions. And I know that you had, I heard about you through that because you had this like beautiful beaded bag that was a part of that exhibit too. And so that's how I originally heard of you first. I I would love to hear like, what was your experience participating in that exhibit and Mm -hmm. also like getting to work with a museum like the Field Museum as well. It was really um, daunting at first because, you know, it's they expect museum quality when you're making something for them. So I was really has like, you know, kind of in my shell at first starting it. But as, you know, I started to, they wanted whatever I wanted to put in there. They wanted me to like, you know, they gave me that option of whole free creativity on whatever project and pick whatever I wanted to do with it which was, you know, amazing because it allowed me to showcase what I can do with my work and like shows that Native people are still here because the way museums have been run, you know, before are like, they make it seem like we're gone or we're extinct or something. So like being able to add our opinions and talk about what we want for the space is, you know, how it should be. And, you know, like not having to be restricted on anything with, you know, your creative process on what you wanted to make or you want to want to do. Because I had a request from museums in the past, like one museum, but it was, we need something like this, like this. We need it to be this big and we need it by next week. Then they'll say like, we planned this last year and we're looking for artists in it. So it's like, we were thought of last in this, the exhibit about like, you know, Native American beadwork. So the way, you know, they handled that 
compared to how it was at the feudal museum it was more like we had the creative freedom to make whatever we wanted even if it's far off from traditional beadwork or whatnot, but still having the respect for, you know, the tribe and what the exhibit is about and how people are going to see our work and how they're going to view beadwork after they leave that area. It was really awesome to have that opportunity to, you know, tell our own stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's a very powerful message for sure. And like, that's something that when we learned about this exhibit at the Field Museum, we had a Nina Sanders come into our class and I think she was like, like the head curator. Mm -hmm. And so like what she mentioned to us something that why this particular exhibit and approach was the appropriate way that how it should be done. It was like decolonizing the museum. Mm -hmm. And it was because like, the majority of the team, they hired a lot of indigenous peoples to work on the specific team that were curating the exhibit, which is something that you don't see a lot, like in mm -hmm. museums out there. Like the, a lot of museums will showcase and exhibit another culture, but then the people that are working behind the scenes are like all white people. So it's like, um, you know, then, then that's where that cultural appropriation comes in again, too. So what I liked about how they approached this exhibit was that they did, they were intentional about hiring Indigenous peoples to work on the team, and then Indigenous artists as well that were showcased. And then another thing that Nina Sanders shared with us is that the people that were working on curating the exhibit they went and spent time the crow nation tribe sure. and stuff like that and so like they went and lived with the crow people for like i think i don't know how long it was but like i think it was like a week or something i'm not yeah. sure but i thought that was really cool because it's like then the the team actually got to build like personal experience with what it's like to be around Crow people, the very people that they're going to be exhibiting on. I think that's super important and I wish a lot of museums would like approach it that way. It was, I was really happy to see that the Field Museum approached it in that way. Yeah, when, yeah with the, um, usually with museums when they put these items out there, a lot of times I'm thinking like, you know, they're going off of like, like a main idea like okay we'll just find anything that looks pretty enough to put in this or you know so like they just go with what information was given at the time of purchase when the museums went out to the crow people out in the 1920s when they sent people out to uh start collecting beadwork and items because they thought that we were gonna be totally assimilated and our whole cultural history would just be like you know gone and you know so they wanted to preserve as much as they wanted so they would send these like people out to go and buy items when they do when they did that like you know they just they're, they're not looking at the cultural aspect or what the significance of these or the importance of these items are it's just, if it's valuable if it's work done to it or you know they, they'll just buy it they didn't respect what that item meant to the individual that they got it from so when they're looking at it in these trying to pick out what they want to put on display they don't know what they are they just it's, it's a bag that's beaded looks like they could put like you know stuff in there so it's just you know that's their way of looking at it for us or because like the stuff down there in the collections you know is not open to the public 
like yeah. for everybody to go in and look through. Yeah. And they have some amazing stuff in there, things that like, you know, I've seen in just pictures. And for them to give us that access to go down there and reunite with these like cultural are like our ancestors because this was their like a time like a time capsule of that, you know, nineteen twenties when they that whole era when they went out there and started, you know, collecting these items haven't heard our language in sixty, seventy years. And so it's like, you know, there's a, a deeper connection with these items with us compared to non-Indigenous folk that are, you know, working at the museum and just trying to pick out something to make it look good with, you know, whatever exhibit. So for them to allow us to go and um, reunite with these items and, you know, photograph and handle them, for me, it was, I'm looking at the beadwork because a lot of it was beadwork too. So I'm looking at techniques that, you know, aren't being done anymore. So I take photos of every angle of it, try to figure out where the, you know, they tied it off and whatnot. So, and by just doing that and then re try to recreating it. So, you know, like these, these things mean a lot to us. And so for them to give us that access, but, you know, not only that, for them to go or to come up here, I'm always talking about Montana and like, you know, up there, because like, you know, I was in Arizona. So I'm always like, oh, up in Montana and Crow, you know, I'm here now. So like here in, uh, it's the uh, Crow Fair powwow every year, and it's out in um, in Crow Agency, and everybody just camps out in teepees, and like it's just there's a powwow going on. There's races, horse races. There's the rodeo. There's just like all these different activities going on. And the crazy thing is that the Crow Fair is the same weekend as the Santa Fe Indian Art Market. If you go to the Santa Fe Indian Art Market, you hardly see crow beaters. And like, that's our specialty in beadwork. And there's only like a few of us in there. And it's, you know, because everybody's in crow, everybody wants to go to crow fair. So like for them to like the museum folk to come in, you know, experience what, how we celebrate things and, you know, our way of outfitting our in-laws in the mornings during a parade. So like for them to go out there and, you know, just look at it from our point of view, made them understand it more than just from reading about it in a textbook or just looking at videos of it. I was really happy that they went out there because instead of them just, you know, oh, we're doing an exhibit about crow people and, you know, we're not going to take the time to go out there. But they actually went and, you know, took the time to go out there, come out here and see where, we, where we're from, what we do and, you know, just different, you know, ways we socialize with each other. Nina's family, I'm pretty sure, was, you know, the ones taking them around and just kind of explaining everything to, like, others. It's, it's a load of information all at once because there's just so many different things going on during that weekend so I'm, I know that they probably took a lot from that from coming out here and just celebrating the way crow people celebrate yeah exactly it's like it goes back to that intentionality that we were talking about mm. earlier mm. how with this exhibit I feel like they're very intentional about how they went about the whole process which added to the exhibit itself another important point that you brought up that's like so problematic about what museums do when they approach exhibits and exhibiting indigenous people's work and other cultures as well as well as like they hoard all these pieces mm -hmm. and they keep them like underground or like locked up so like it's not even showcased to the public so public doesn't even have access to come and look at these pieces and so a lot of what museums do is they just like take these pieces from communities and cultures 
and then they just hoard them for themselves just to have them. And so I, I like how you brought that up too, because that's another like problematic thing that a lot of museums do. But it gives me hope when I saw the Field Museum and like this particular exhibit, the Woman and Warriors exhibit, it kind of gave me that hope. I was like, okay, like at least they're trying to like do better and like approach it in a more like intentional way. But yeah, I also wanted to like switch gears a little bit and you know, like I'm going to encourage you to talk about mental health <laughs> always. <Yeah. laughs> so um, I know that you spoke about it a little bit earlier in the episode, but if we want to dive into that a little bit more about like, what have been some of your personal experiences in your mental health journey so far? You know, just growing up poor on the reservation, we we didn't really have a lot of opportunities here. Like, we, I don't feel like there's still a lot of opportunities for, you know, to get interests in other things. And so with beadwork, you know, I had to kind of, like, work to do it because, you know, I just, nobody wanted to show me. So, like, you know, being rejected from people telling me that, you know, you're, you're just going to get bored with it or you're, you know, they just set you up for failure. So it just kind of, like, really affected my mental health. That would affect my mental health, but then also, like, struggling with my sexuality, like, being, uh, you know, being gay. That was probably the big uh, secret that I just, you know, ate away from at me, like, growing up and not knowing how to address it and knowing how to you know deal with these feelings and if I did tell somebody it's just going to be like go pray and pray about it because I come from a really strong family of you know we're Pentecostals and so we have family that are devout you know Christians and they um there's some that are traditional in our family what do you do you know like what religion do you follow this kind of seems like forced to you know, either go to church or, you know, do Sundance or sweat. And, you know, that does put a lot of pressure on Indigenous youth because if you go to church, you don't like your culture or anything like that. You're just, you're colonized or you're assimilated. And, and if you do try to, like, practice your, you know, traditional ways, like trying to do Sundance or sweat or these other ceremonies, then you're looked upon from the other, like, you know, the Pentecostal side, like, that's paganism and you're participating in botanomancy or, you know, just that's devil worship and, you know, you're going to go to hell and burn for eternity for that. So it's like, you know, that does, it's historical trauma from back then when they came and approached us and tried to assimilate us. And, you know, tried to force the ending out of us that has been passed down on all of us, this, our generation. And so, you know, like with poverty, substance abuse, there's, you know, just crime. It's just like, we're so broken as a people that we just become not negative, just pessimistic. So it was kind of like that, like growing up around that, like, why are you going to do it? You're just not going to get it anyway. Or why even try? You're just going to quit in a couple of weeks. Like there was no uh, encouragement or push from family members to do anything. And when you would do something, it was, oh, you're trying to act better than us. It's when it's you're trying to improve your mental health. And so I would deal with that at like a young age because I would try to talk about things and then it would just be like, oh, whatever, you know, just get shot down. 
I just became like closed in with myself and I just was just like a loner and I you know I preferred to be alone just don't run with the crowd or whatever just go and do my own thing and so by with beadwork like I was able to do that like I was able to focus on learning how to do these techniques and stuff process my emotions and you know whatever whoever I'm going through while working on these items because you're sitting here for hours just working on something so there's that time you can just sit there and ponder over things in your mind and just think about them so I was able to do that a lot when I was younger processing emotion and you know if something happened in my household then I would um just go away to where I was alone and just kind of like deal with it then, you know, try to get through it so it doesn't bother me or affect me like mentally or emotionally. Even just beating, like I was bullied for that, like in my seventh grade year when I took that bilingual courses and beadwork was part of it. The class was to teach us how to do POD stitch. We didn't pick it. They just chose the classes for us. Like, so the guys had to, the other boys in my class would, you know, want to do workshop or woodshop and they didn't want to do like home economic or beadwork. We would do these, try to learn, do beadwork like they would just be in the back, like not even trying to learn it. They're just, you know, doing something else. So when I took the interest in it and, you know, just put the time and effort into it, then I was looked at as being (laughs) gay. I don't know. They would just say, like, why are you doing beadwork? You're a man. Only women bead. And that goes back to Christianity coming into our reservation and putting gender roles on these sort of things, like men and women do certain things historical trauma still showing up just growing up with my family my parents were substance abuse users growing up and then me and my brothers just kind of like clashed with each other growing up and so there was like a lot of animosity and a lot of times when I would try to like voice my opinion or say something then I'm looked at as you're trying to be better than us just like totally disregarding you know what I have to say so I would just shut down block everybody out and I just would be and like you know growing up poor we didn't really have a lot of stuff stuff that I did have like I would guard it with my life and that was like my beating stuff and people would touch my stuff I would like freak out and lash out at everybody you know did you take this did you steal this and so it just kind of like I feel like I would lash out and then the way I would try to like take my mind off of it and just calm down would be to just start working on something just start you know beating and and then it gets you know as I got older then I got into substance abuse like I'm just I was like one of those statistics of you know indigenous men you know they're, they don't live the past a certain age because they get addicted to this and or they become or they get into substance abuse that happened to me when I was like pretty young age so like when I was 16 is when I started to depend on opiates to kind of get through the day and just kind of deal with my mental health while you know trying to pull off this facade of me being like this straight kid that's just trying to finish high school and but you know just kind of being who I really am in just hiding it away as I grew older I just grew to like with you know being on substances to kind of alter my moods to make me happy and stuff I would um change everything about me so it felt like a floodgate so it felt like all these things that I've been hiding or holding inside 
my life. And then when I got on drugs, I felt like I had the courage enough to say it and use it in, in defense as a weapon. I would use it to hurt people. And I just didn't care. And that was because I was under that influence of a substance. And so it drove me to contemplate suicide and attempt suicide. And it just it just ruined me like you know everything I did because even in that short amount of time from when I was 16 till I was 19 all the stuff that I've accumulated over the years like my beadwork and or like the beads and um, some of the materials and stuff that I had I was selling them off because I wanted pills and I was buying them off the street so I was just selling everything that I had just to get high and you know, with my past trauma and just starting, you know, really affecting me as an adult, I had to, I had to like cope with it. And I didn't realize it at first, but until later on, that beating was my way of coping with, you know, getting these like thoughts of suicide or just wanting to give up and whatnot. I'll just go into my shell and I just start beating and then trying to get, you know, off the substance abuse was probably like the hard part because out here we're limited on resources within our community and then out of our reservation so um for me to get you know going to rehab required me to leave the state because there was no resources around here and i think that's why a lot of native americans or like people from my tribe that are strong substance abuse those opportunities or there wasn't those resources there for us to help us or with mental health as well i remember at the IHS where if you miss a certain amount of your appointments, then you get like reprimanded for it or you can't do it here. You have to go somewhere else. And so it's just like an uphill battle. And so for me to deal with these issues without any other interference was that I had to leave. And so I, I moved. I moved just whatever opportunity came up, I would just latch onto it and leave the state. Just over the years, just learning to like finding my coping mechanisms and just like using art as a an outlet for everything with dealing with what you know past trauma or you know recent trauma, anything it just just allows me to like sit here and just kind of think about it with the passing of my mother in law like I found her and you know her body, so that you know messed with me really bad and I would find myself trying to work and like try to process it and I couldn't. It would like trigger my anxiety. So I would like, you know, like walk around and stuff and then I would just get up and like have to go for a drive and just kinda like I couldn't use my art therapy for that. So that's when I reached out for help. And that was just to find a rehab because from 2012, when I was about 21, I went to rehab and got off of opiates and was clean all the way up in 2018, which was, you know, the passing of my my mother-in-law. So when that happened, I relapsed because I couldn't deal with, you know, everything. I felt like I got into this trap where I got sucked back into that, you know, addiction and I couldn't get out without getting help. So I almost a year after like being on drugs again, like, you know, taking opiates and stuff. My thing was that I was taking fentanyl. I like, I just had a high tolerance for opiates. Like, you know, cause I've abused like just every opiate that you can think of fentanyl was my my drug of choice and so for me to like finally come to the decision that I wanted to get clean and start dealing with these past traumas is to 
seek help. And so when I built up the courage, it took me about a week to build up this courage to just call the treatment center in Winslow which was Winslow, Arizona, which was the closest place to where we lived that was off reservation. When I lived in Arizona, was, you know, they refused me. They just said that because my address where I live wasn't a physical address and it was a PO box number that they could not go and do an assessment at the house. They refused me. So like, you know, there's that defeat of like, you know, you're being turned away. Nobody wants to help. So I went to another place and it just the same thing. It just kept happening. So I tried 15 different facilities in Arizona, neighboring towns all the way down to Phoenix. And it was either you go into rehab for like 90 days to a year with no like help from like, you know, Suboxone help or like a methadone treatment or whatever, and just quit cold turkey, which is what those withdrawals would cause me to get suicidal. And it just would last for a while like that thought would just stick in my head because I'm you know I'm like quitting cold turkey and not you know getting any assistance like with the you know the other medications that help with opiate dependency their treatment you know they didn't have that program the suboxone treatment and so I started to panic I'm trying to get off these and you know I'm not like court ordered or anything I'm I'm volunteering to like come into treatment or just like you know get the counseling and stuff you know I'm being turned away for something as small as my address it just increased that thought of suicide every time I got rejected. Well, at the time, I didn't have, like, really much money because I was, like, trying to get my commissions done while also taking care of my partner. And I was his caregiver, so I had to do two different things at once. And it was just kind of, like, felt like a was on my shoulder. and Nobody was, like, listening, so... I finally just was ready to like pawn like my jewelry, like my rings and stuff just to like pay for the fees so I can at least just start getting the help that I needed. And so when I went to Southwest Behavioral Health and Flagstaff, they allowed like they, they just listened to me and like, you know, my story or whatever. And they helped me. They found a grant to cover my costs because I was going to start paying. Well, I did end up paying for a couple of them, but, you know, my medications I had to pay for out of pocket and it was they're like really expensive. And But, I, you know, I didn't care. I was just getting the help and I was getting off of these drugs. And so by finally getting onto the program, started detoxing, started thinking clearly, I knew that I had a lot that I didn't deal with. By doing my beadwork is what like showed me that, you know, there's things that I haven't dealt with that need to be addressed. And by just taking that time to just sit there and think, it just makes the biggest difference for me. Because if I didn't do beadwork, I don't think I would have, like, been here. I think I would have just ended it a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, no, I thank you for sharing all that. I acknowledge that it's, like, can be very difficult to, like, talk about stuff that you know is very personal and especially like has to do with like your own trauma and stuff like that so I acknowledge that that can be tough to discuss so I appreciate you being open about sharing that also it goes back to like the point that you mentioned with the multi-generational trauma within like indigenous peoples alone I, I like how you mentioned that there's still the 
impacts of colonization that are being felt today, especially in regards to mental health and like so many other different areas, but like since we're talking about mental health right now. So like that, like I, I can see that too, like why people would feel the need when they have all this like multi-generational trauma and their own personal trauma as well, like in their own lives that they're dealing with. And then the no access to any resources, like fundamental resources, just like for survival. And then especially for mental health too, like I can see how all these coping mechanisms would come up. What I know from what I study based off of like multi-generational trauma and trauma, how it's all rooted from colonization basically. Um, but also like how when someone ha is experiencing that, there's always this need to exert control because like with trauma, there's so much things that are out of our control. That's why some people fall into these coping mechanisms of like using substances. Um, and that, that gives that sense of control. It was like when you're using that substance, you are in control over at least one thing in your life. Um, but then also there's coping mechanisms that are more healthy, like art making that where you also get to exert that same control, but it's a more healthy way of coping. So um, yeah, I, def I definitely see all that and I appreciate you sharing all that. And I think something that you mentioned to me too before when we were like discussing and planning out for the episode is how it's not talked about like with mental health and like your community and stuff. And there's like a huge stigma around just discussing mental health. And so like you told me that that's like why that's a big reason why you're so open about talking about it and sharing your personal experiences because like it's important for you to like talk about these things so mm -hmm. like because like so many people go through it but it's not talked about and then that just makes things even worse so um yeah that's that's why I appreciate you like speaking and like being so open about it too yeah thank you yeah it's just it does it's not talked about as native people as we grow up, we're not really like, you know, we don't really talk about our feelings. We don't talk about issues that, you know, go on in the household. It just kind of seems like we just deal with it and just give it no thought. Even within my own family, like we have a lot of, we've experienced a lot of trauma as a family and yet it's still kind of hard to talk about things. But yet, um, you know, I'm having to bring these discussions up with my family to point out things, toxic behavior that, you know, have been passed down from, you know, her mom, my mom's mom, the way she was raised too. And so like from her telling me that she wasn't, she couldn't talk about it with her mom. To me, that's, I, you know, that's a generational curse that's just, you know, being passed down from all of us to pick up these traits of like not addressing things or talking about it. Or because, you know, the thought like of it hurting the other person's feelings. So with that, you know, we talked about it and I just approached it to her like saying, you know, you do these things and I know it's not your fault, but I just want you to be aware of it. Oh, like, and for her, she's like, I do do that. Like, I'm, you know, like, I, I know I do that. I see myself doing it. She said, I just don't know that it's happening when it does. And so like, you know, that just kind of helps her to like, watch what she says you know in regards to me giving news or anything like that so it's like it's very important that like native families discuss things that are not being talked about enabling them that just starts your growth and you know it's just a learning process but it's just you know we need to talk about it and 
we're just so hesitant to talk about it with non-Indigenous people. I think, you know, that goes back into the, you know, historic trauma of the white person coming onto our reservation or coming into our land and just causing, you know, the mass genocide and the, the assimilation and, you know, that we just, we feel hesitant to be, trust a white person. So, and the counselors that they have here, some well, they the counselors that they had here back then when when I was living here before was that there was a lot of them that were non native, and I I saw it within myself too because like when I would go into these council or these counseling meetings or like you know just talking about past trauma or whatever like just with my therapist session and like um, I just found myself really hesitant to talk to this you know non native because how are they going to understand where we're coming from as, you know, because we live in, gone through these things, being on this reservation, compared to them coming from going to school, living in different, another state, and, you know, living in a city away from, like, non-Indigenous people. So it's like, how am I going to connect with this person? Because, you know, we have to explain what certain things mean, like when we do certain things within our community, like, you know, ceremonial things or just traditional social activity that when we talk about it, like, say, the hand game, I'll be talking to them about something, and then I say, you know, bring up hand games, and then like, oh, what's that? So and then I have to go and explain everything, you know, about that to them to make them understand it. And so we know that they're there to help, but it's just the way that I think they approach everything is completely off, and it needs to, like, change, because I feel like our people are just sinking lower and lower into this like rock bottom and the foundation of it is you know all of us as a people how are we going to be able to fix our tribe without fixing ourselves first you know because we're you know the foundation of this tribe we make this tribe what it is but how can we do that if we're all just broken and damaged and you know trying to recover and work on ourselves and do all this when it's it just needs to be talked about. Yeah, definitely. And there's like so many barriers, even when it comes to like, even when someone gets to the point where they want to seek mental health resources, that's a whole journey in and of itself. There's so many barriers and challenges just to get to that point. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't get to that point too, just because of what we've been talking about. So many like systemic issues surrounding access to resources and stuff like that. Um, but even when someone gets to that point, there's even more barriers, like how you experience, like 15 places turned you down. Like that is just so disheartening to hear, you know, as like someone that's going to be practicing in the mental health field myself as a, as a professional, that's just so disheartening to hear because like the number one thing when you sign up to be a mental health professional, the number one rule is do no harm. And so I feel like that's just causing so much harm to turn someone away just over something as like an address, you know, like that's, there's just so many issues there. And then also like representation of Native peoples as mental health professionals themselves too. Because yeah, it can be very exhausting to, to try to like explain everything and spend all your time during your therapy session which is only like 50 minutes a week anyway. And to spend a lot of that time just explaining stuff, that can be very exhausting. And like, again, 
who, where does that responsibility fall on and why does it fall mm-hmm. on the client when, you know, I feel like it should be the therapist's responsibility to educate themselves on that. So the client doesn't have to go through that. But yeah, like, I, I think that's like a really important topic that we're speaking mm-hmm. on. And I like really appreciate you like sharing all of your insight and stuff. And also, I, I remember that you shared with me that self-care is a very important aspect mm-hmm. for you too and something that you're currently trying to work on yourself incorporating self-care into your work and your life so I want to ask you why is self-care important to you and like how do you try to incorporate that into your life and work well <laughs> self-care I've been like I'm still learning how to take the time off because I'm a workaholic I just like I feel like the time of like within the hours within the day I need to be productive I need to have something to show at the end of the day I don't like you know wasting my time and I've never put myself first if my back's hurting or like from beating you know all these hours like just take you know take the day off like it that was kind of it was really hard for me to do that in the beginning like about a year ago but now it's essential for me to keep myself like grounded with my work and what I want to do because if I'm constantly stressing myself to the point of exhaustion and just hurting all the time then I'm only just doing more damage to my health than I am to you know my work and so I had to like start out small by at least like taking a break for an hour every five or six hours. Now I'm like doing it to where like every two hours that I'll take like half an hour to just kind of like go walk around, just kind of something for me or like take the day off and just like go hang out and drive around and do stuff. I like started doing this thing where in the mornings I will just drive around in the back roads wherever just looking around, you know, just like the sun's coming up and I just like to have that time for me to just like go look around, explore what's in the area. I'll take my camera with me and just take pictures of different places, just, you know, listen to music and like listen to audiobooks and just kind of like, you know, take time for myself. And I found that by doing that, I was more productive and my I was able to think clearly on projects for like before where I wasn't taking, you know, doing anything for like myself, putting my work before me. I worked myself into exhaustion in May where I just was just like my body was just weak and I like, you know, it scared me thinking I had coronavirus, but I just worked myself into exhaustion that my body just gave up and needed to like reset for a bit. So after that, I started to pay more attention to self-care, especially as an artist, because if we're like full-time artists, it's just all we think about is just, you know, what we're doing, our projects and whatnot. But if we don't fit ourselves time for ourselves into these things and it's just it could reflect in your work by your taking longer on commissions. you know like I would work myself to where I was doing one project one certain design over and over and over to the point where what took me two hours to do took me like three days but and that was because I'm just was constantly pushing myself to do something like and then you know life happens something happens where you know it's just out of the blue and for me at the time I had this pair of earrings that I was commissioned to do and it took me a year to do even though she paid me in full you know my partner ended up in the hospital and this was you know before his mom passed and so you know, I would just be honest with them just saying that you know I'm currently going through something and if you want a refund then you know I'm more than happy to give you your money back 
I just, be honest, just be like, I'm sorry, this happened, this happened, and this happened. And it's just a result from not taking time to rest my body and my mind. So it's very, I think it's very, very important to wedge self-care into your like busy work schedules because it does make the biggest difference. Yeah, I love talking about self-care. It's like one of my favorite topics for sure. Um, one one of the reasons why is because it's not talked about. You know, like we're not taught from a very young age that self-care is important. And self-care is not a part of our community. It's not like a norm. I, I really like this quote by Audre Lorde that I've mentioned on a previous episode too, is that self-care is not selfish, but it's an act of self-preservation. And in that, it's also political warfare at the same time, because like to engage in self-care is to actively resist what we're taught growing up. It's, we're taught not to, not to prioritize ourselves and take care of ourselves. So I really like that, that quote by Audre Lorde. And like, like you mentioned, like if you don't take time to rest, your body will force you to rest by like sickness or whatever you know so like either you put out that time and carve out that time to rest and be in control of it or if you choose to ignore it your body will force you to rest anyway so you know might as well carve out out that time so you can be more efficient with it but yeah no I want to thank you so much for this conversation it's been like super lovely and such a beautiful and insightful conversation that we've had Um, so lastly I just want to end on like asking you Based off of all the lessons you've learned so far in life, what advice would you give to your past self or to new up-and-coming artists or just to listeners who are listening and maybe can relate to some of the things that we've talked about today? If you find an interest in something that other people think is, you know, odd or like just out of the ordinary, like, you know, don't listen to what people say and just do it because learning these skills at a younger age will, you know, benefit you in the future. I try to, uh, you know, push that for younger people or like, you know, parents to teach their kids to bead or at least show them, like introduce it to them so that maybe if it's something they're, they'll, you know, want to do, then they'll do it. And it doesn't have to be just beading. It could be like quill work, sewing, crochet, you know, anything, any kind of craft or you know, something you see real potential in and to just take every opportunity that comes to you. You know, don't bring yourself down or like, you know, saying that I'm not going to get in there. So I might as well not even just apply because you're just setting yourself up for failure. If you feel passionate about something regarding it being like, you know, something a woman does, say, you know, like sewing and all, like just to, you know, if you like it, then do it. Even if you have to do it within the comfort of your own room or your house and, you know, because just one person says that a woman does that and you're a man or you're a boy or whatever. Don't listen to them. <laughs> just, you know, focus on what you want to do with your life. If you feel like that's going to be something that, you know, will benefit you in the future, then just go for it. And, you know, for the parents, like if they're, you know, their kids are taking an interest in these things too, because like a lot of times the parents are the ones that you down they are the ones that will say you're not going to get in so why even try if you have a passion for it do it disregard everything everybody else says yeah i love that that was some lovely words of wisdom and advice so thank you so much for sharing that and i think 
that was a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation that we've been having. And if you want to check out Elias on Instagram, you can do so at Elias Not Afraid. And also, you'll find that in the episode notes too. And in the episode notes, you'll also find a link to the Woman and Warriors exhibit at the Field Museum. So please check that out. If you live in Chicago, I believe the exhibit is up until like June or July. Um, so you can go check that out in person or you can also do so online. And there's also a link to a Vogue magazine article, which Elias Not Afraid was featured in as well. So please check those out in the episode notes and go follow Elias on Instagram and show him some love there too. And if you want, you know, buy his artwork as well. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much, Elias, for being here. I really appreciate all of your insight that you shared today and your time and your energy and your effort. And I'm just really grateful that I was able to sit down and have this conversation with you. So I appreciate you very much for being here and taking time to do this. And so thank you so much for being here and coming on. Yes, thank you for having me too. As always, I thank you for listening and staying tuned. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with the people in your life. I would also really appreciate if you would subscribe to Synergy Cast on whatever podcast platform you prefer, give it a five-star rating, and leave a good review mentioning what you like about the podcast. You can also follow the Instagram for updates at SynergyCast, and I have also included that in the episode notes. I have now a new feature, which is a voice memo feature, which I am very excited about. So if you would like to send in your thoughts and your feelings or your personal experiences, feel free to record a voice memo and send it my way. I would love to include your voice in the next podcast episodes. Lastly, if you are willing and able, there is another new feature where you can donate however much money you want to help support SynergyCast financially. If you do choose to donate, the money would help me pay for several things. It would help me pay for myself, my own energies, my own efforts, and also the money would help pay my future guests especially people of color, for their time, since I believe it is very important to compensate people of color, especially for their time and energy, since many BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, have a history of being taken advantage of and underpaid or not paid at all for their efforts. So any and all ways you choose to support would be very much appreciated. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.